This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Hello and welcome to episode 41, where in today's podcast, I am going to discuss, is it safe for me to leave my loved one with dementia alone? But before I dive into the topic, I want to wish all of my Christian listeners a happy Easter, my Jewish listeners a happy Passover, my pagan peeps happy Ostera, and for the atheists in my audience, happy non-deity day. Just made that up. Anyway, the topic popped up as I was working on a piece about caregiver self-care. Dementia caregivers constantly ask me, how do I take time for myself if I'm on duty or on call 24-7? Most dementia caregivers know that they need to take care of themselves, but they find themselves last on their lists because the needs of their loved ones seems greater than their needs. There are also times where the caregiver has to go somewhere like a doctor's appointment or to the hospital for a test, and taking the person living with dementia with them is not an option. Meanwhile, the person living with dementia is insistent that they can be left alone. And that puts you in a bit of a tricky situation. Yes, you want to respect their wants and their autonomy. And the last thing you want to do is to put in place any unnecessary restrictions. But how do you know if leaving them alone is something you can safely do? So for today's podcast, I want to talk about supervision needs. Specifically, how do you know if you can safely leave your... If you can safely leave your loved one with dementia alone, and for how long? Okay, so let's dive in. Many people living with dementia, especially MCI or the mild stage, can be safely left alone for a couple of hours and even overnight if they are able to safely move around their home without falling, if they can independently meet their basic needs, and if they can demonstrate the ability to get help. So let me explain those three items in more detail. First, I want to talk about safe mobility. Mobility refers to moving about the home independently or using an aid such as a walker, a cane, or a wheelchair. The safe part means that the person living with dementia can navigate the environment without losing his or her balance and falling. This means that the person living with dementia usually navigates the environment, and when I say environment, anywhere they move around, such as the house, maybe the front porch, the backyard, the garage, they are able to navigate 
the environment without observed unsteadiness or previous falls. When I talk about safe mobility, I want to note that there is no such thing as 100% fall-proofing anyone or any environment. It would always get on my last nerves when I would get a phone call from a lawyer's office and they would ask me to take a case to defend a nursing home or assisted living or some type of community agency because an individual who resided there fell. Yes, there were situations where the fall really was negligence, but as long as there's gravity, people are going to fall. So I don't consider falls a, quote, never event, unquote, that I've seen in the literature or other people will assert that falls are 100% preventable. You do your best, but even when floors are kept clear and throw rugs are removed and the environment is uncluttered, a mishap can happen. Personally, I live in a small, mostly tidy house, and I had a near fall the other day because I stood up to let Amira out the back door and I stepped on one of her squishy toys. And as I felt the toy underfoot, I immediately thought I was stepping on one of the cats and I pulled my foot out rather quickly and nearly lost my balance. I think sometimes we get so concerned about the potential for falls that we want to wrap people up in bubble wrap and don't let them move. Personally, when I was caring for a family member living with dementia, I had a lot of conflicts with her son because her son had this belief that Mary should sit in the chair and not move. Every time she got up to go to the bathroom or go to the kitchen, he would fuss at her and say, why are you walking around? You're going to fall. And I kept telling her son, no, she needs to move around. And if her son wasn't around, Mary would walk fine. In fact, there were times she left her walker near the chair, stood up and walked beautifully to the kitchen to get something to eat or to look out the window. And her gait was steady and balanced and firm and very fluid. As soon as her son was in the environment, she got so nervous, I think she was going to fall because she was upset that he was around. So that's that's my thing about falls. You, you do what you can to make the environment less likely to cause a fall, but I think it is unrealistic to ever completely expect no falls. I just wanted to put that balance in there. Ha, no pun intended. The second thing I want to talk about is the ability to meet basic needs. For the purpose of this podcast, I am defining basic needs as the ability to safely and appropriately dress, correctly take medication, meet hydration and nutrition needs, and engage in personal safety. Note that I said nothing about bathing 
because while bathing is important, a skipped shower or bath for a day or so does not affect your decision to leave someone alone for a couple of hours or even overnight. So I'm going to talk about the ability to safely and appropriate dress. By that I mean your loved one living with dementia is able to put on clothes in the correct order that are appropriate for the household temperature. The person living with dementia should be able to go into their closet or drawers and select the outfit. If they aren't able to dress themselves or if they require cueing and direction, they cannot be left alone even for a short time period. And you may be thinking, why? Because if they are unable to perform this basic skill, they are likely operating with the brain function of a five or six-year-old. I don't mean that they think they are small children because people living with dementia may forget a great deal, but they always know they are adults. I mean that they may have the same self-care capacity as a very young child and you would not leave a very young child alone at all. Next is medication. The person living with dementia must be able to take the correct medication at the correct time without you reminding or cueing them. It is okay to have the medication pre-poured into pill boxes. If the pill box comes with an alarm and the person living with dementia follows the medication schedule and responds to the alarms, that is fine too. So if you do need to leave them alone for an hour or two and they're having problems with the medication, you would schedule your absence outside of medication times. Now, many families do daily medication checks. And they are satisfied if they see the empty compartments in the empty pill boxes for the correct days. If the person living with dementia takes medication throughout the day, especially if they're still living on their own, you may want to check the daily compartments in the middle of the day or before the evening medications are usually taken. And even though this podcast is about supervision needs and when and and can I leave my loved one alone it also bleeds over into situations where people living with dementia are living independently and the family is starting to wonder if there needs to be more oversight and the medication issue is usually one of the first red flags that there needs to be more oversight and involvement. So to backtrack, I recommend that you check the daily compartments in the middle of the day or before the evening medications are taken. And you may say, why? Some people living with dementia will take the entire day's medications all at once. Or they will get up and take the morning dosage and no problem with that, but then they forget about the midday medication. When they see the multiple filled compartments at bedtime, they think, oh, I forgot my lunchtime meds. So what they'll do is they'll take both the midday and the bedtime medications together. This can be a problem 
for medications that have to be spaced out throughout the day, like certain blood pressure medications. If you are prescribed 50 milligrams of, say, metoprolol three times a day, and you skip the noon dose and you take 100 at bedtime, that may cause your blood pressure to take a pretty significant drop, which could cause dizziness, confusion, it could result in a fall. So that's not a good idea. If you stop by after supper, check the pill boxes to make sure that the morning and afternoon compartments are empty so that this tells you the person is taking them at the at well as close to the correct intervals as you can tell. Inconsistent empty compartments or medications being taken on the wrong day indicate that your family member may be safely left alone for a couple of hours, but not for any length of time that includes two or more medication times. A possible workaround for this is to see and ask the prescribing clinician if a long-acting, also known as a once-daily medication, can be swapped for the same medication that's prescribed at short-acting dosages. Now, another piece of the ability to meet basic needs is eating and drinking. If you are planning to leave your family member alone for a couple of hours so that you can have a few hours to yourself, their ability to prepare a meal may not be a concern. What you do want to watch out for is any use of appliances that can create a fire hazard. You do not want your loved one living with dementia to decide to make a cup of tea, put the kettle on, and then forget about it. On the other hand, if you need to go somewhere for several hours and mealtimes are involved, you want to make sure that your family member can safely reheat prepared meals or is happy munching on, an, on a previous made salad or sandwich. So at this point, I'm going to take a quick commercial break. And when I come back, I'm going to speak a little more to this area. Okay, so let's talk about the adequate nutrition and hydration issue as part of safely meeting basic care needs. Some people living with dementia have difficulty with impulsive behavior and may eat large quantities of food that makes them ill. I've had patients with frontotemporal dementia eat five-pound bags of candy in one sitting or consume an entire container of dry pancake mix as a meal. If this is your situation, you may want to secure problematic foods and keep small quantities of healthier foods within reach when you are not there to see what your loved one is doing. If you are leaving your family member with dementia alone for several hours, you also want to make sure that they know to stay hydrated and that they actually stay hydrated. As I've discussed in other podcasts and written in other blogs, dehydration can cause a lot of health problems 
like dizziness and then falls and urinary tract infections. To be fair, it can be a challenge to have anyone living with dementia drink enough fluids. The final piece of making sure they're able to meet basic needs is the basic need of personal safety. And this is a biggie. When I first moved into my neighborhood, I noticed one of my neighbors across the street watering his garden. I approached him and asked about the trash pickup schedule. As soon as I started interacting with him, I knew immediately he had some type of cognitive problem. And if my adult kids are listening to this, Mark and Sarah know I do not see dementia everywhere. I am accused of seeing dementia everywhere. I just happen to be right. But anyway, as soon as I started interacting with my neighbor, I could see he had some type of cognitive problem. And I saw that because he had the, he had a very confused look and my question upset him because he started to repeat over and over again that his wife always told him when to take out the trash and he didn't know the pickup schedule. So I, I simply asked a question. Hi, I introduced myself. My name is Rita. How are you? He introduced himself and I said, hey, out of curiosity, what is the trash pickup schedule? And he kind of fell apart. Then he told me his wife was not home, but I was welcome to come in and sit down and wait for her. I quickly changed the subject to how beautiful his flower garden was. And he started to talk about that topic and he relaxed. And after a few minutes of listening to him tell me all about his garden, I said goodbye and went back to my house. So here's the thing with that interaction. The man's willingness to invite a stranger into his house was not a good sign. Perhaps he was following old patterns where his wife's friends would stop by and they would visit with him while they waited for her to come back. But I was a stranger and I was not known to him or to his wife. I wish it were not so, but there are nasty people out there who prey on the vulnerabilities of others. If you have any concern about your family member opening the door to strangers or inviting them into your house, you may want to reconsider leaving your family member alone. Or you may want to install some type of front door security where you can monitor who is ringing the doorbell. Another related issue to personal safety is wandering. If you have any concerns about your family member leaving the house to get the mail or to take a walk and then getting lost, you may want to reconsider leaving them alone for any length of time. Because unfortunately, that's when the wandering is going to happen. If, if you're there all day, maybe not. But if you go and say to them, I'm, I'm going to run to the store for 15 minutes or I need to go get gas in the car and you leave them alone and they have you already see evidence that they may go for a walk and get confused, you are not going to want to leave them alone because you don't want them leaving the house in your absence 
and then getting lost. So I talked about a couple things. I talked about assessing their ability to ambulate safety or to move, I wouldn't say ambulate, but to move safely around the house about meeting basic needs. And I talked about the what I considered the components of basic needs, the ability to safely and appropriately dress, to correctly take medicines, to make sure they're eating and drinking enough. And also I talked about personal safety as part of the making sure their basic needs are safely met. The last piece is figuring out if your family member living with dementia can get help. That is, what is your loved one's ability to know that they need help and then get it? There have been times in my clinic where family members are not providing the level of supervision that the person living with dementia needs. The family member... The family members are not being neglectful or mean. In fact, it's the opposite. They are invested in promoting their loved one's independence. And the family members tell me that their loved one knows to call the police or the fire department in case of an emergency. I always assess this ability in clinic. I first ask, if you see a fire in the house, what do you do? Almost everybody says, I call the fire department. I then hand them my cell phone and say, show me. One or two may start to push the numbers. The rest look blankly at me, confused by the request. In that situation, I gently explain to the family that it is no longer safe for their loved ones to be left unsupervised. To be fair, Most of these individuals living with dementia were also having trouble with safe mobility and were also having difficulty with meeting their basic needs. And if those two things are problematic, I know they're going to have trouble getting help. However, if your loved one is not having any difficulty with safe mobility and is meeting their basic needs, as I've talked about, It can't hurt to make sure that they are able to get help. The bottom line here is, if all of these conditions have been met, if your family member is able to safely move around their home without falling, if they can independently meet their basic needs, as I've talked about, and they can get needed help, then they can safely remain at home by themselves while you run some errands or take some time for yourself. If you will be away for several hours or even overnight, the ideal situation would be to have someone stay with them. But if that is not going to happen, because oftentimes people at this stage in their dementia are very much aware that you're trying to limit their lives and they're starting to get fussy at you. And that's where this is a a kind of a, a delicate balance. But if you need to be away overnight, the second best situation would be to have someone check in on them. 
And again, if you think your loved one will fuss at you for having someone check in, you can always have the visitor turn this into more of a social call. Like have the check-in person bring something like a dish or a plate with the cover story of, oh, I just stopped by to return Aunt June's cake dish or to return, if, if it's a woman who's, who's home, another way to do this is to knock on the door. You know, hopefully the person checking in is someone they know, I would assume so, but you can have, you know, a cousin or somebody stop by and say, you know, oh, hi, Aunt Elizabeth. I was returning Uncle Frank's wrench he borrowed. And, and probably Aunt Elizabeth is, isn't going to know that Uncle Frank didn't lend you the wrench, but you're walking in to return something. So you are showing up to do something, not to check on her. Because otherwise, if you knock on the door and you're like, hi, you know, Uncle Frank asked me to stop by and make sure you were okay. Maybe that would be well-received. There are some people who would find that very comforting and would invite you in and give you cookies and be, be very happy about that. But I'm reaching out to a very large audience and there are many different faces to these dementia situations. So if your situation is such that your family member is going to get pissed off that you had somebody check in on them, this is a great cover story. Have the check-in person returning something, or they could be bringing flowers or a treat or the grandkids. Or if I have to check in on anybody, I always bring Amira because it's like, oh, hi, we were in the neighborhood walking by and, um, you know, Amira wanted to say hi and Amira's really cute. So they go, sure. This way, the purpose of the visit feels more social and less like a check-in because it's really important that we do respect the dignity of our family members who are living with dementia. And that is where as a caregiver, especially in the earlier parts of the journey, it can be a tight rope walk because you do want to make sure your loved one is safe and everything's okay, but you also want some time for yourself and you want to strike a balance. And that's, this is, you know, one way to assess the situation, because there may be a situation where your loved one is perfectly okay to be left alone for an hour and a half while you run to, in the South, we have this store called Piggly Wigglies. I just like saying the name. I honestly have only been in one twice, but if you want to go, you know, to the local Winn-Dixie or Piggly Wiggly and, and, you know, get some groceries and you don't, I mean, sometimes it's really hard to go grocery shopping with your loved one in tow because they don't want to go, or you just want an hour by yourself, then, okay, you now have the tools to figure out, is it okay if I leave my loved one alone for maybe an hour or 90 minutes versus, 
can you be in a situation where it's okay to leave them for an extended period of time? And yes, there are situations where leaving someone alone and unsupervised overnight is a really bad idea, but it is safe and okay to leave them alone for say 90 minutes to two hours. And hopefully I gave you enough information to figure that out for your particular situation. So before I wrap up the podcast, I do have some sad news. Pippin, who you heard in last week's episode, Pippin came in to my home office and was very, very vocal. He's passed away. He was a great cat, had a good long life. Well, for a cat, he, he, he was 14 and he went peacefully on his own terms. So I guess maybe I should dedicate this episode to Pippin, but I still have Amira, the pandemic puppy, and Gandalf the Grey, who is actually sitting next to me. And Gandalf doesn't usually bomb my podcasts, but when I start releasing more videos, you will see him show up. And also, stay tuned. I will be doing some more videos as time goes on. I've had to relinquish my monthly Facebook lives and my webinars because I've had a lot going on and I didn't want to just half-ass it and throw some shit together. So I am planning on some really cool free videos and webinars and I will keep you posted. And then again, if you want, I also have my book, Make Dementia Your Bitch, and my book is available on Amazon and if you are listening internationally, my book is, in, is available on all of the international Amazon sites like Amazon UK, Amazon Canada, Amazon Australia, Amazon wherever. Because when I self-published on Amazon, I clicked the little box and told Amazon, sure, you can put it on all of your various marketplaces. It is also available via Kindle. And if you participate in Kindle Unlimited, you can read and access Make Dementia Your Bitch as part of your Kindle membership. Okay, everybody, I wish you all a fantastic week, and together we will make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.